collected yourself some data, and now you want to make sense of it. Well, how do you go about doing that? In this episode on the Tech Emergence podcast, we speak with Slater Viktorov, who is the CEO of Indico, a company that he started at the tender age of 20, and shortly after uh, raised a few million bucks from folks like General Catalyst and others. Uh, the Massachusetts-based company is focused on machine learning. And in this particular episode, Slater speaks to some of the common misconceptions that business folks often have about where and when machine learning can be applicable, and some of the lessons he's learned from gleaning tangible insights from data with uh, approaches for machine learning. We speak today about how sometimes big data is not better data, and the kinds of steps the company should be taking early on to make sure that they'll have information worth making sense of uh, when the time comes to apply a technology like machine learning. So interesting gleaned takeaways for any of the companies out in the audience who might want to make sense of their own information, and I thought a rather fun episode. So without further ado, we'll roll right in. Now, Slater, uh, later on in the interview, I, I know I'm going to want to get into the nitty-gritty around how companies can set themselves up to, to leverage data, but being someone who's, who's gone in the back of all sorts of companies, from you know big Fortune 100s to, to other smaller organizations, um, from your perspective, uh, what what sort of data is necessary to glean insights from in the first place? You, know, you had mentioned off mic, it's not necessarily quote unquote big data that is uh, inherently required to leverage machine learning like many people might assume. What 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 is necessary? What have you needed to be able to glean tangible insights from information in businesses? Well, that's a spectacular question. It's one where I think actually a lot of people fall down. And I think I think the, the notion that it's not big data is really what I would emphasize here. It's all about quality over quantity. Um, and what I mean by that is I think the, the primary types of data that are actually most valuable to companies in the long run are rich media. Uh, and what I mean by that is that there's a big tendency for people to say, I need to collect data and I need this to be in sort of very proper tabular format. So they end up trying to take all this rich data they have in, whether it's customer support logs or you know uh, chat records or anything like that, and they try to coerce it into something that fits into a spreadsheet. Right? It's saying, okay, look, I'm going to log you know the satisfaction record, but you know the text, all oh, that that stuff isn't very useful. Um, and I would basically encourage the total reverse of that. Is that I think that when you look at the largest amount of value possible, it's really coming from rich media which is text, which is audio, which is video. Mm. Um, and the more of that data you can keep with, with useful metadata associated, of course, I think the more value you're going to get. Huh. So, so um, as opposed to what you had just mentioned, which might be taking every various and sundry uh, factor that you can jam into a spreadsheet and just making sure it's included, um, you're talking about keeping track of a certain kind of rich information that might be more likely to glean insights and it, it sounds like maybe most businesses are, are, are potentially some businesses are going about it the other way absolutely and i think i think the the most common uh sort of offender here i would say is clickstream data um businesses love clickstream data because it is very very large it's a as a company can very quickly get to gigabytes or you know even in some extreme cases terabytes of clickstream data um but to the best of my knowledge, the amount of value that has actually been garnered by that clickstream data is negligible at best. Um, and I think that's it's a perfect example of people are optimizing for types of data which are as large as possible to give themselves sort of effective bragging rights without necessarily trying to focus on what would actually be deeply valuable there, right? So storing all of a user's clickstreams throughout their life cycle, in my experience, has 
far less value than if you just maybe had them do a social login and log their Facebook posts and their buy decisions, right? Um, in that second scenario, right, you're storing a fraction of the data, but in my experience, because there you're dealing with a much richer kind of data, you're going to get far more insight than if you were uh, dealing with clickstream data. Huh, this is curious, and it's it's a, a little bit of um, maybe a chicken and egg problem for the folks in the business world who may not know what, if put through a SIF, would shake out insight. Um, you know, what are the thought processes that, that you go through to sort of discern, okay, here's the 5,000 potential elements of, of these customer interactions that we could track. Um, here's the few that I dig in this situation, and, and here's why. I suppose it depends on the objectives of the business. I suppose it depends on context. How do you think through that sort of in terms of fundamentals? Yeah, so the way that I try to think through it is to strip it down to first principles as much as possible. Um, there's a big sort of assumption that people have that for some reason, because you're dealing with data science, because you're dealing with machine learning, you need to approach the problem fundamentally differently than you would as a human being. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes in, is people assume that computers can't deal with the same kind of information that people can, and they assume they can't step through the same processes. But... Um, sort of that, that assumption fundamentally means that you're trying to do this apples to oranges comparison. So I'll give just sort of an example in, in e-commerce, totally. right? Um, so as an e-commerce store, right, your goal is to ensure that people are buying as much, as much product as possible. And let's say specifically you know that giving accurate recommendations is a key piece of that, which I think is a, a very, very... Safe to say, safe to say, my good man, yes. Many, many e-commerce yeah. companies. Um, if I were approaching that as a human, my first goal would be, okay, look, if we want to recommend products to people better, we need to understand the people better and we need to understand the products better, right? To understand the people better, we need some more in-depth information about that, that person, whether this is social login information, whether this is uh, maybe reviews they've written on previous products or just, you know, sort of their browsing history. Then on the product side, I want to understand more, let's say if I'm a fashion site, I need to understand more about the designs that are going into these, things that are actually driving buying decisions. Um, and, and that's a very, very logical sort of progression, right? So, you know, and then in, in that case, sort of the approach that I would recommend is, let's say in a perfect world, you can both get social media information for one of your logged in users. Let's say you get an Instagram account and you can look at sort of the actual content. Let's say just for argument's sake that you're a fashion specific e-commerce site, you can look at what someone has on their Instagram and you can look at sort of the, the dresses and shirts that they've looked at on your site and what they've liked. And you can look at ones that are similar to that and you can use that to drive recommendations. Right, and, that, and that's a very, in, in my mind at least, it's a very intuitive, very human way of thinking about it, and that's exactly the way you should approach it from the machine learning perspective. Uh, but what I see very typically is people faced with exactly that same problem say, okay, we need to drive better recommendations, so instead of thinking about it like we think about every other problem, let's instead uh, find the biggest amount of data we can, and Clickstream is the one that people always immediately mm -hmm. jump to, so we're just going to log all of users' Um, and then what happens is they sort of forget about it for two years, and then they look back and say, okay, look, we have 500 gigabytes of clickstream data, and we want something, someone to work with it. And the thing is, when you're just collecting clickstream data, right, you've lost all of that, that human element that you really want to be driving your recommendations based on. And that, that jump to sort of dealing with clickstream data, or even if we just say, you know, the, the products that they've looked at and ignoring the rest is done because there's sort of this underlying assumption that computers can't look at the same data that people can and they can't make the same sorts of conclusions. Um, so I would say getting out of that mindset that 
computers somehow deal with these problems in a fundamentally different way than people do. Uh, I think that's really the first thing to go beyond. Interesting. Yeah, I, I suppose in, in some regard, you know, I, you know, the, what you hear is, um, you know, hey, Google, Google made sense of cats and Google made sense of dogs and image data with neural nets. Um, and man, they had to run a lot of computers at once. And holy criminy, they had to jam a lot of cats and dogs into this thing. And uh, that's the thing about machine learning is, you know, geez, that's really important. And maybe if, if all you hear is that, and this isn't your formal background or you've never necessarily applied it, then maybe that's the way you think is just that whatever you can get at high volume is going to be a win. But it, it sounds as though, you know, as it turns out in practice, many times, um, if, if you can dial into information that's most relevant and think about it almost like you would rationally uh, without, without just thinking, what can we get at high volume, but think about what would we need to know to do this, um, maybe that's the best framework to think through. Let me ask this. I mean, you mentioned this briefly, um, Slater, and I, I thought it was interesting. Is it in fact possible, I'm unaware myself, is it in fact possible to have someone sign up to an e-commerce site with their Instagram account or Facebook account and use similar images or meta text on images that they've engaged with on those platforms to recommend products on, um, on, on another platform? Because is Amazon pulling that off today? It is. Uh, no, so they're not doing it today, but it is absolutely okay, possible. Okay, got it. I mean, so we've done this with a couple of partners and seen sort of very, very optimistic all the results. It turns out that when you look at what someone shows on social media, you know, obviously in, in the perfect world, someone just shares an Instagram picture. Hey, this is the dress that I really, really want. Why can't I find it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, that's very unfair. Rare. What you see is a much more common progression, and the nice thing is I think this will be very intuitive to everyone, is that you look at someone's Facebook feed, and if they talk very frequently on Facebook about running and cooking, let's say, mm. that, that's product recommendation right there on a fundamental level, and potentially you're allowed to show them things that then you wouldn't have insight into otherwise, right? So if someone's a cooking fanatic on social media, and they show up on Amazon just because they want to buy... I don't know, some Ethernet adapter, they needed some piece of electronics very quickly. You don't have that knowledge and you can't make an intelligent recommendation to them. But if you just have that, and that's just a tiny, tiny granule of the information you can get from someone's social media profile, you understand that they're a cooking fanatic and you show them a recommendation of the you know, 10 coolest cooking tools on your site right now. You're going to get them to make them perfect. Yeah. And it's just, there's no way around that, right? You know, even if they showed up for one thing, the fact that you have that additional information, I mean, it... It helps you show people what they really want, even if they weren't necessarily looking for it at that time. Such, such as the future of advertising, which, uh, which, which will, which <laughs> yes. will be a, a wild world indeed um, in, the, in the coming five or yeah. ten years. Um, but, uh, but certainly interesting. Now, Amazon, as of today, is not doing that from what you said, but this is in theory or in practice actually something that is possible? Or are there potential e-commerce sites already doing this today? Um, there are potentially commerce sites already doing this. I think I think the most common way that people do this today is purely based on style of products. Um, so I'm aware of a couple of fashion sites, for instance, that if you look at a dress with a particular pattern, instead of recommending you know other popular dresses or dresses by the same designer, which is sort of the, the typical spreadsheet way of doing it, will actually recommend dresses that look stylistically similar. Huh. Uh, Right, so I think that's that's a level that's primarily done on today, but I think that's that's absolutely um, you know the, the same direction, right? And there's a lot of different ways that can be implemented, but absolutely people are, are moving in this direction. Interesting, yeah. I, I uh, uh, the the sign up with Facebook or sign up with LinkedIn. I think you know I, in the future potentially more and more will be involved there than just 
getting your email with one click. It will also be a lot of context and access. I, I don't know what Facebook is open to or whatever, but what were you saying? You would be, you'd be very surprised <laughs> even today the amount of information that you give people access to when you hit a sign up. Uh, even 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 GitHub, which is probably the most restrictive on those on those privileges, uh, you know, has the option to allow people to ask for you know your email, the ability to make new repositories, the ability to you know post as you, read as you, all, all sorts of things that you aren't necessarily aware of. Um, but e even today, people are giving away tremendous tremendous amounts of information. Wow, um, curious. Well, you learn something every day, folks. For those of you tuned in. Um, on, on that note, Slater, we're talking a little bit about, you know, um, uh, projects that you've been involved in. I, I know that uh, I can imagine recommendation, the recommendation side of things, relatively uh, common application of, of artificial intelligence in today's day and age. Uh, a lot of what you've done with uh, companies large and small has involved making sense of data. What are some other tangible examples that might be sort of maybe representative examples of what can be gleaned from information? What have you and your team sort of worked on without having to name names of companies necessarily, but what, what, what have you and your team worked on where you were actually able to gain a, a positive yield and, and in what way? Absolutely, so I'll talk through a couple of these. I think one um, is in the influencer marketing space. Mm -hmm. And influencer marketing is you know, one of the really, really attractive sort of hot new areas in marketing is being able to identify these influencers or experts on social media platforms and basically give brands a way to engage with those influencers or experts um, you know, in a way that actually helps them get licked and is just another more effective sort of uh, marketing and advertising tool for them. Um, so part of that problem is just identifying who's influential. Um, and and you know, not to say that that's an easy problem, but that's a relatively solved one and finding the person that has you know, the largest number of likes, you know, the most connected sort of corner of the social graph that's a, that's a very achievable problem. And sort of the next, the next step of that is figuring out, okay, look, we've got this list of influencers. If, you know, let's say Dunkin' Donuts or, or Oreo, you know, some, some major brand comes and wants to actually do something with one of these experts, um, what you next have to figure out, because you've got so many experts, is sort of which one is a good fit for that brand. Um, so what we've been involved in is sort of automatically looking at someone's social media profile and saying, okay, look, this person is an influencer, specifically they're an influencer when it comes to food, right? Or this is a running influencer, this is, uh, this is an NBA influencer, right? Which then can help sort of brands on the other end focus in and say, okay, look, this is exactly the kind of person that we want to engage in. So actually helping people then interact with these experts and influencers online in a much more natural, much more human way almost. Um, so just to, to pick up what you're putting down here, um, essentially looking through social data uh, and, and just determining by whatever criteria, whatever they're posting, um, the other people that they're connected to. Um, there's a lot of sort of interesting constructs there that you brought up, maybe not all of which are evident in metadata to the point where they're really self-evident, such as, you know, running or, or MBA. There's probably more nuanced ones like um, Southern cooking, for example, or something where th these are things where Absolutely. it's not like the person says, my, you know, on my Facebook account, Bill Stevens expertise, Southern cooking, right? And everybody else has the right. same drop down selection. It's this is kind of a contextual thing. So what you're doing, Absolutely. it sounds like is is making sense of those concepts um, through social media accounts at large just by combing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that that's a great example. And sort of the, the first pass that people always say is, oh, yeah, well, we can just look at the Facebook picture department. Um, and yes, sometimes, you know, if you're an expert in Southern cooking, you'll be a part of the Southern cooking Facebook group and that'll give you a great signal. But, you know, 
very obvious you can recognize not everyone who's a part of that group is influential in Southern cooking and actually finding, you know, what's happening in the discussion and sort of moving your focus away from sort of that, that pure spreadsheet metadata uh, actually helps drive much more accurate and much more sort of contextually aware recommendations. Cool. So you can pull in all, all sorts of factors to, to adjust the model here. I imagine for you folks, it could be, you know, the, yeah. their average level of engagement on posts, who they're connected to and what sort of constructs and, and, and concepts those people are associated with, et cetera, et cetera. And then modify and adjust until you find something that seems to really be pulling up the most relevant folks. Yeah, so I mean, what, what, what we really have found is that 90 plus percent of the value that we can glean from someone is just based on what they say on social media. So just looking at that text, there's so much information in that text that people aren't paying attention to right now. We get 90 plus percent of everything we need oh, just from that. Wow, curious. Well, folks, just so you're aware, there are people like Slater in the world, so be, be uh be careful what you're posting out there on social media. No, I'm joking. Uh, it may, it may... Yeah, no, if, <laughs> yeah. if you're lucky, some brand might pay you 100000 bucks to make a YouTube video. Yeah, geez. Hey, that's uh, anybody into Southern cooking. Um, so, all right, so there, there's there's one solid example. Um, what's, what's another potentially representative example of machine learning sort of in action, making sense of data sets, large or small? Yeah, so I think another one that I'd like to talk through is sort of on the on the customer support side. And this is a place where we did sort of some early experiments um, and found some really, really interesting results. Um, so a lot of people on the customer support side are interested in getting through tickets as quickly as possible, right? And just saying like, look, I need my customer support representatives to be able to answer everything that's coming in and I want to direct things to the appropriate people. Yep. Um, and then again, it's a great problem. It's something that absolutely needs to be solved and there are a large number of companies doing that and doing that very well. We decided to take a, take a look at was sort of the, the level beyond that is saying, okay, look, now that you've got all this customer support data successively being, being analyzed and sort of directed appropriately, what's that next level, right? Can we actually look at your customer support data and give you real actionable feedback on your product, right? And your customer base. So what we did was we basically looked at all, and again, this is focused just purely on the text data in the, in the records because we find that people traditionally look over that. Um, so looking at that text data, we were able to recognize things like uh, product features that had, you know, either been broken by some release or that particular users were very unhappy with. Um, actually seeing, you know, how the sentiment around particular features had changed over time, which ones were being mentioned very frequently and saying, you know, say you, uh, you push a new release and your navigation broke on mobile, you can see, you know, the sentiment on navigation from January to March dropped from, you know, a plus 7.5 to a, you know, 0.15, right? So people went from, you know, generally liking about it or not talking about it at all to absolutely hating it. Um, and the other thing that we were able to recognize sort of doing that analysis was when a particular customer was upset, right? So you could see things like, oh, you know, this, this individual customer maybe wasn't angry per se in any one of these interactions, but the last three interchanges we've had with them have all been a little bit negative, right? And that's actually a really strong signal of one uh, of a customer potentially leaving the service. Um, so those are just a couple of examples of things that we were able to glean. Again, and this is looking through data that is already there, people already have access to, but they largely ignore because even though the first thing a person would do if they were trying to innovate on a product is look through the customer support record and see what people are unhappy with, there's this assumption that computers can't do the same thing. Huh, it, it, so it, it sounds as though you know, a big part of this clearly is the the forethought of of you know human beings, at least at the time present, whereby um, you know 
what what is it that we ultimately want to learn? In this particular case, it sounds as though the insight could have been, um, all right, what are, what are our trends for reviews and customer service interactions about product X, and how does that correlate to maybe changes in the product? Okay, hey, we might not have realized this, no one might have picked up on it, but here's a pattern. Or, you know, we noticed that by the third interaction below this level of satisfaction, we, um, we have, uh, you know, a higher likelihood of people leaving. We're, you know, it, I suppose this could have prompted them to say, hey, after a second poor interaction, we're going to call them or we're going to mail them a card or, I mean, uh, how, how might this prompt so new, think, new action? Yeah. So I think, I think part of that is right, but I think part of, part of the way you're phrasing this, I would encourage you to sort of break, break out of the shell is this sort of wording in terms of what interaction number one, right? So that sort of assumption that, okay, look, we're going to recognize that on the second interaction people have with this element, they're unhappy. Um, actually, I think people need to think about this in a much broader sense, right? Because it's beyond just finding sort of one, because again, that, that's a very tabular view of the world. That's very much like what computers only understand what number of interaction we're on, and we can't understand general unhappiness, right? And so I know for me, if I'm on a site, and let's say I'm not happy with the navigation, I think the top bar is greatly unintuitive, there's no interaction number at which I'm going to leave the site, right? But what is going to happen is that I'm going to be very confused when I interact with it. If I ever ask for support, I'm probably going to mention it, even if I don't make a big stink about it. I'm going to mention it anytime I'm in contact with that company. Um, you know, again, even if it's not like direct, even if it's not very overt, that's that's really how I'm going to express the fact that I'm dissatisfied. Um, and what really needs to happen at the company level, right, is you shouldn't be thinking like, okay, yes, we need to call someone, but it actually shows, look, you need to change your site. People aren't happy with the navigation. And even though it might be difficult to point to, you know, a specific number in the spreadsheet where this is failing, right, it's, it's having wide sort of underlying effects. So it's like if you, if you fix navigation, you're going to see that, yes, uh, engagement and interactions two, three, four, and five all increase. But it's not necessarily that there's one bottleneck in the point. Huh. And so um, it, it seems as though, it seems as though uh, I'm just trying to just put myself in the shoes of, of someone running, running the company. It sounds as though if maybe if there's enough signals that have something to do with the menu after a certain kind of change, um, that that might be a way to to pick up on it. So it's not it's not necessarily hey you know, after X number of interactions per se, but how can we sniff out any poor interactions with this particular element based on what people say, based on how how long people try to toggle with it or whatever the case may be is, and then um, how can we learn directly from that? Which sounds like an, an awful challenging task. Um, but it sounds like the um, the one that you're sort of advising in this particular circumstance. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the other thing is you don't necessarily have to know exactly what to look for immediately. You can just say, like, look, okay, in our customer support logs, right, let's find what keywords for which the average sentiment has dropped by a certain percentage in the last three months, right? And it might not even be something that you're aware of. You know, for instance, you know, when I make when we make code changes, when most people make code changes, I think they're often unintended consequences. Oh, yeah. So let's say, you know, hey, look, I just want to see everything that's happened the last three months. And let's say, you know, so we we maintain wrappers in a number of languages. So let's say the sentiment for PHP dropped from 0.6 to 0.2. We're like, oh my God, why did that happen? You know, people seen, you know, they used to really like it and now they don't. I don't think we changed anything in that three months. But then you realize, oh, shoot, we pushed something that makes, you know, this unintuitive thing happen in PHP. We didn't even realize we did it. We didn't even realize that we should be on the lookout for it. But 
people have been telling us this. And yeah, when, when you're a small company, you can just sort of manually look through the customer support logs. But you know, by the time you get into any any sort of real scale on customer tickets, it very quickly gets out of hand. Uh, curious, and, and maybe this is when you know machine learning would be called for. Uh, with that being right. said, in, in terms of wrapping things up, I'm wary of time, but I'd really like to get this tidbit out here. Um, there's there's likely companies who are tuned in, or maybe even other folks that that do similar kinds of work. Uh, but but certainly organizations who are are potentially eager now or in the future to to apply uh, machine learning to their own data, large or small. Uh, with that being said, you've probably walked into many a circumstance where um, you know folks were excited about applying machine learning. Maybe they had a decent premise and some objectives that would seem reasonable. But by golly, uh, you know whatever their goals were, whatever their data was, or however clean it was, or however quality it was there really wasn't going to be much work to do there. Um, what are the what are things that you would warn folks against doing? Or what are the, the biggest reasons why people might be in a situation where this is not even viable for them? Um, I like to be able to, to keep people from kind of making those common uh, stumbles and, and put themselves in a position to leverage this technology when they can. Absolutely. So th there's a couple of sort of big pitfalls that I point out for, and a lot of them, you know, and this may illustrate some of my internal biases, but I, I promise you I'm not the only one who would say this, is to stay away from Microsoft products as much as possible. Um, as far as this the is fantastic. Have, I love it. I, I'm just saying, you know, as far as stumbling blocks that I found that are just insurmountable barriers to doing reasonable data science or machine learning, if, you're if all of your documents are in Word, it's a no-go, pretty much. Excel, Excel is better, right? Excel, you actually, you know, that, that's a reasonable format that a data, data scientist can work with. But if you have things in, you know, legacy Microsoft formats, if you have, you know, a thousand PowerPoint documents and you need people to sift through it, um, I, I've just found that that is, that is the, the largest, largest hurdle um, I've seen. Most, most cases I've found, that's insurmountable. Wow. So, so my, Microsoft, so, and you, you work a lot with text data, it's sort of your own work. So Microsoft as a format for holding said text, um, generally not something that allows you to pull in and make sense of that information. Is this just a formatting issue? Is this a compatibility yeah, so, issue? I mean, a lot of it is, it, it's a combination of those things. So a lot of it is that Microsoft likes to keep their formats very, very closed off. And the other thing that's, that's worth noting there is by and large, so the machine learning community has centered around Python. Um, and Microsoft, and granted, Microsoft is making great strides here, but they haven't they haven't quite quite crossed that barrier yet. Is that Microsoft has historically taken a very strong stance against Python, um, and the fact that sort of the entire machine learning community has gravitated towards Python, and Microsoft had previously, and, and they've reversed this position very recently, um, taken a big stance against Python, uh, means that right now, sort of the ability to integrate between those two environments is abysmal. Wow. Uh, Oh, point. Um, uh, we're, we're might, point. We'll probably change in the next twelve months, um, but but today it's just it's uh, it's massive and it's horrendous and it sort of results in people making these very convoluted structures where yeah they do you know annotations in Word and then they export it out to this weird XML format that you know their uh, Microsoft Access database really convinced them was a good idea 
and they're trying to work with emails and Outlook, and you know, by the time you get that far, you just you've shot yourself in the foot. Well, okay. So in general, Microsoft products, uh, from your experience, tough time uh, leveraging in in machine learning learning sort of context. Okay. Note note with, made with a specific with the specific exception of Excel. Okay. Um, I would I just want to call attention like Excel, wonderful wonderful product, and that's one area where I would say there's there's no hindrance there. Whatsoever. Excel gets some props today. Okay, very good. Um, all right. So Microsoft in general. You're pretty darn tentative about. Seems to have some serious troubles with Python. Obviously, a, a major, um, you know, language here in the machine learning domain. Uh, so that's that's one point. Uh, what are the other common stumbling blocks you run into where you, you just don't feel like there's progress to be made? Uh, yeah. So I, I think I think one of the other major things is again people sort of collecting the wrong kind of data or collecting it without associated metadata. Um, there's a, yeah, so I think actually I'm, I want to talk more about that second point about not collecting useful associated metadata. Um, so if I am an e-commerce site and I'm just going to use that example because it's a very intuitive example, uh, and I want to automate and I want to optimize for sales, I need to keep my sales data. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that, right? Is whatever your highest level business objective is, you want to make sure that that's mapped somewhere in the data that you're storing. Um, because a lot of people in the e-commerce space, they say, hey, I want to do something with images, so I need to store all the images. And yes, yes, you should. <laughs> but if you're not collecting that map to, you know, whether it's traffic or sales or whatever the high-level business directive is, it's basically useless. Um, and I, I just mentioned that specifically because a lot, of the, a lot of the time, if you don't store it when it happens, then you can't go back and find that data. Yeah, and... and, and uh... Man, well, I mean, you'd think that's intuitive, but I think we've all, you know, even if we're not in the machine learning space, we're just interested in our own business intelligence. Anybody that's run a company has run into a number of circumstances where you say, man, you know, let's go see how we were doing uh, during this period. And, and uh, oh, as it turns out, you know, we actually never, never tracked that at all. And, and it's now basically... Uh, you know, impracticable to, to, to access in any way. And, and obviously in a machine learning context, it's a pretty, pretty rough scenario. So think about your major objectives. Maybe Slater, it makes sense for people to talk to smart data science people about what their goals are sort of well before they want to actually apply something just so that uh, they're at least in a position where they're keeping somewhat of what would be needed. I mean, it, I would guess yeah. that unless someone has that expertise, you should talk to somebody before you start making your own decisions about what to track here. And I would absolutely recommend that. I think that's something that's, that's crucially helpful to all people. And, then, and I think there's one, one final point I'll make on that, um, which is that a lot of people assume that they need a custom solution. Um, that's sort of a lot of the, the appeal to a lot of people about machine learning is that whatever data they're working with, they say, no, I need something custom. My data is different. My data is special. My data is, is a snowflake. Um, pretty much nobody's data is a snowflake. Um, you know, nine times out of 10, you'd be just as well going with some off-the-shelf solution. Uh, and the attempts to specifically customize something for your application will actually hurt you more than it helps you, right? So if, you know, and again, we'll do the e-commerce thing. Um, if you, if there's a vendor that has a solution already to help you, let's say, optimize your images on e-commerce for sales, you should work with them. You should not try to emphasize that everything has to be custom-made for your solution. Because you know what? If you've got... 20,000 examples even, which is a pretty sizable e-commerce site, 
that amount of data is very small in the machine learning world. And you could try to sort of stretch and, you know, get yourself to the amount of data that they're really going to require. But honestly, the delta you're going to get from just using the pre-built solution to having something customized there, it's negligible. And the amount of difficulty required to do that, you know, as, as a first, as a first step is just it's large. large. Huh, interesting. So, and well, obviously you've built out custom solutions, if I'm not mistaken. And from what I've, Absolutely. from what I've gathered as well, Machine learning today is more of a bespoke sort of process and a tailored sort of process than, let's say, uh, marketing automation software, where kind of anybody can kind of get constant contact and push send, um, that, that there's a little bit more tweaking and massaging. But what you're saying is if there's something pretty much built for pretty much what you're doing, you're likely to be able to glean some reasonably fast results by by you know, if, if it works, just sort of going with it and not, not uh, liking the bragging rights of having constructed your own interesting, wacky model if it isn't necessary. Right. And, and I think what I'd even argue, you know, I might even go a step beyond that mm -hmm. is to say if you're going with the custom solution, very frequently that's done as a way to conceal what's called overfitting or something only works for a very narrow problem domain. Um, so if you, if you work with a vendor and the vendor assures you that you have to go with a custom solution, um, very frequently that's done as a way of sort of masking the weakness of the technology you're implementing. Um, it means that the technology you're using only has a very, very narrow problem domain where it will actually be applied to. And it'll typically mean even on your site, right, if you make something that is, say, optimized for dresses, but then eventually you want to go on and sell baby food, whatever they made for yeah, dresses yeah. isn't going to work on baby food. Yep. If you can work, something, work with something generic from the get-go, yeah, maybe eventually you want to increase those last five percentage points by doing something sort of custom. But if someone can't give you something that works off the shelf, um, then the custom solution they make for you is not going to be great either. Huh. Lessons to consider. And, and uh, we're, we're certainly okay with people expressing biases here. I think one of the reasons we, we talk to uh, so many folks uh, on the podcast is because a lot of perspectives and a lot of biases adds for some decent richness to the conversation and and to kind of consensus that people can draw on their own. So I, I appreciate you going hard on Microsoft and hopefully, like you said, in 12 months, the circumstance will be different, but you know, it might be, might be a pitfall for folks and certainly something worth asking your data science team. Uh, Slater, I'm aware of, of our time here. I, I'm glad that we got to cover that last topic though, because I believe it's a valuable one. I just want to give you a big thanks for joining us here and sharing your insights in the Tech Emergence podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Dan. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well. So be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off, and I'll see you next week.